Film and Whiskey Nation, do you ever think about awards? Of course you do. You drink whiskey and watch movies, which means that you know that nothing is validated until a group of random people say, hey, we love what you're doing. The awesome thing about Doc Swinson's whiskey is that it isn't just some group of schlubs that are giving them awards. They have been winning attention from some of the most important whiskey experts that you can imagine. They've been voted best distillery in Washington state by the New York International Spirits Competition. They've been voted the best independent bottler by the Ascot Awards, as well as the best finished bourbon from the Ascot Awards for their La Menta Exploratory Cask. Their Exploratory Cask series is where they release some of the most fascinating and adventurous experiments. If you're ever checking out Doc's lineup and see a white label, there's a really good chance that that's the only time you'll see that bottle, so make sure you snatch it up. Doc Swinson's has been offering just phenomenal finished and blended whiskeys for quite some time now. You can find them online at docswhiskey.com. That's D-O-C-S whiskey.com. In 1987, the Coen brothers and star Nicolas Cage gave the world a wacky heist caper that aimed to steal your heart. In 2023, we pair a long-awaited movie with a long-awaited scotch whiskey. The film is Raising Arizona. The whiskey is Lagavulin 16. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the Coen Brothers' 1987 madcap comedy, Raising Arizona. Madcap, huh? Madcap, Brad. Madcap. (laughs) I liked your use of wacky. Wacky is a really good word for this movie. It is just... You know, I was reading our friend Ian Nathan's book about the Coen brothers, and he kept using the word zany to describe this. Mm-hmm. I think zany works. It reminds me of the Animaniacs. They used the word zany. And this yeah. seems like it would fit right in with an Animaniacs cartoon. It is essentially a Woody Woodpecker cartoon come to life. And I love it. Yeah. Woody Woodpecker makes an appearance. Many at, times. In a, in a tattoo. <laughs> yeah. And, and in Nicolas Cage's hair. Yes, very obviously. <laughs> Do you remember watching Woody Woodpecker growing up? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. you know, I feel like it was always part of like other shorts. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it was never like a whole half hour of Woody Woodpecker, but they yeah. would sneak one in every now and then. And I always liked the Roadrunner cartoons in theory, but the like the gag ran dry for me after five minutes. <laughs> Four year old Robert. I think it's like, just because yeah. there's, like, there's no dialogue. and like, This was good when I was two. But. No, it's just like, I, you know, you watch him <laughs> run into a wall and you're like, ah, ha, ha. And then it happens four more times and you're like, bro, you're dumb. <laughs> I you know? loved it, I mean, man. Yeah. I was a big fan. All right. Well, cool. Then I hope you liked this movie because this is, again, this is the equivalent of that. It 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 is similar to that. That is the truth. All right, so this seems to be one of those weeks where Brad's going to have a very different opinion than me. And, you know, I've been batting pretty close to a thousand this year. I've been flying too close to the sun is, I guess, what I'm going to say, because I pick movies and I worry that Brad is going to hate them. And then uh, most of the time he does. But this season, 
I mean, brief encounter really threw me for a loop. I did not expect that <laughs> at all. So if you didn't like this movie, I guess I'm kind of due for one. But uh, you know, I, I was really building this up in my mind because I thought you would love this movie. You know what we should do? We should do a season where instead of so season five was me picking just, you know, movies I love that might not be classics and you doing the same. Mm -hmm. We should do a season where I create a curated list of 15 movies or 16 that I think you would love. And then you do the same for me. And we judge how well we know each other's movie tastes by the end of the season. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, we could do one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, at the beginning of college football bowl season, they always have a ranked by like confidence meter, like who's going to yes. win. Yeah, like most confident that Brad would like to least confident. And I'm telling you, dude, if we did that this year, brief encounter would have been way at the bottom. Yeah, I, I, I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, I love Brief Encounter. Great, great movie. Uh, Raising Arizona. If you're if you're ready for my take, Bob, I, yeah, I don't, let's hear, I don't let's hear your it. initial thoughts. I, I do want to hear initial thoughts there. I, I did have a moment of epiphany after I watched this film and I realized that this podcast is it's a it's a vehicle for you to talk about movies. And not to say that I don't love it. I absolutely love doing this with you, Bob. But everybody knows from the start of this, this was your idea. You wanted somebody to talk about movies with. And, and <laughs> yeah, here well, we are. Don't, don't sell yourself short. It's not like not like I'm just using a mannequin to, <laughs> to sit across from me to give well, the appearance I, of someone to talk to. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. <laughs> but I realize that if, if each and every episode is, is partially just to make you feel good. And, hmm. and help you enjoy your life and, and you know, enjoy a hobby with a good friend. Sure. Every once in a while, I need an episode where it is solely for my enjoyment to make you hate that episode. Oh, don't I do think, this to me, man. <laughs> I think that uh, the first instance of this was the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Uh -huh. The second was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh-huh. And the third was Raising Arizona. Oh, my gosh. You hated it that much? Bob, I literally, you can ask Haley. I was sitting there watching the movie. She's sitting in our living room on the couch. I'm in, our, in my computer room watching it. And I just let out the biggest sigh. <laughs> and Haley goes, what's wrong? I was like, I just looked. And there's 40 minutes left. This Brad, Brad, this movie's movie is like 85 minutes long. It is so fast paced. I can't believe <laughs> oh. I hated this movie, Bob. Like when I say hated, I am genuinely talking about assassination of uh, of Jet. I can't even say the full name. I'm so frustrated with this movie. I, I hit that point that I've hit so very rarely in this podcast where I literally thought to myself, I need to make Bob pay for making me watch this movie. Can I tell you how sad this makes me right now? Like <laughs> more than Assassination of Jesse James, more yeah. than what was the other one? Eternal Sunshine. Eternal Sunshine. I I watched this movie for the first time uh, a year ago. And I was immediately like this might be the only Coen Brothers movie that I would give a 10 out of 10 to. <laughs> <laughs> and I like the Coen Brothers. 
Yeah. And I, I, like, I, do, I, I do, too. I laughed my ass off. I thought this was a perfect American comedy. And then the last scene, that, that closing narration is so poignant and so beautiful. And I was so like, wow, undeserved. just shut up and let me make my point. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is how sad I am. I watched it this time and I was like, I think I'm getting emotional at the end of this very dumb movie. And, and then I started reading, we're going to have an author on the show next week. And she, she talks about like religious parallels in the Coen brothers films. And I started reading her take on this movie. And I was like, wow, like Brad and I, as Christians, I was like, man, what an incredible way for me to take the back half of this episode and talk about how this movie touches me deeply as a Christian. And mm-hmm. like, I was like, man, there's so many parallels like to, to the, the concepts of grace. I was like, man, this is going to be such a good episode. Brad, literally, if I could take, <laughs> if I could take back everything I said about Brief Encounter and you could just be like, it's the dumbest movie ever. And I love that movie. I wouldn't care as much <laughs> as I do right now about this movie. I was yeah. so looking forward to you watching this movie. Yeah. I, I am like, I'm so upset right now. I'm sorry, man. I, I'm not sorry, but I, I'm a little no, bit sorry. Nor, nor should you be. <laughs> but once again, your unpredictability strikes at just the most inopportune times, Brad. Like, <laughs> it strikes at the core of your being. I mean, if I had to bet money at the beginning of the year on like, hey, there's probably five movies Brad hasn't seen here, you know, or, like, you know, there's more than that. But like that Brad wouldn't have even known about. Which one of the five do you think he'd like the best? I'd have been like, oh, Raising Arizona. Like, that's going to be, he's going to love how goofy and dumb and silly this movie is. We're going to have a great time. I will say, you you <laughs> told me that the opening 10 minutes might be the most perfect comedic opening to a film. Is yeah. that how you described it? Yeah, it's like, yes. I think you're wrong. It is... Though, wait, 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 wait. Hold the on, hold funniest on. part of the movie. Okay. It, I like how you started that statement as if you were going to try to soften the blow. Like you could see me over here <laughs> bummed. And you were like, hey, yeah. I will say. And then you went, I, I think you're wrong about that too. Like you just yep. rubbed salt in the wound. Yeah. A little bit of iodine uh, flavor note that we might get on the Lagavulin 16 later. The only reason I'm still here for this episode, Bob, is because you paired one of the worst movies I've ever seen with one of the greatest whiskeys I've ever drank. I am not trying to say that, like, this was me being arrogant because I I was trying to like, hey, maybe Brad won't like this quite as much as me, but he'll like it enough that he can he can be nice about this movie. And also, you know, he's been waiting to do this Lagavulin, and so I'll pair up the movie that I'm most excited for with the whiskey that he's most excited for. And yeah. you ruined that, too. <laughs> Why can't we ever have nice things, Brad G? I, I prepared my ass off for this episode. I was like, man, we're going to hit all these cool points. And I can just tell it's going to be one of those where you're like, yeah, cool. After every point I make. Can I tell you the one part of the movie that I actually legitimately chuckled at hold it for now because we have to get into the actual like (laughs) like structure of this episode (laughs) okay 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 i'm popping my whiskey right now and uh (laughs) we're gonna segue into a segment that we call brad explains but before we get there as seeing as this might be our last episode ever i I don't even know why i'm plugging our patreon but i probably should if this (laughs) is your first time listening to us i i deeply apologize 
Uh, if it's your 300th time listening to us, then th- you know what's up. This is par for the course at this point. <laughs> we want to encourage you to check out our Patreon. Support this podcast at patreon.com slash film whiskey, where you can support the podcast at three different tiers, a $3, a $5, and a $7 a month tier. At each one of those tiers, you get a lot of bonus perks. We literally were just posting in our Discord server for patrons earlier today. Brad and I are on there every day interacting with uh, the public and our patrons. At the 5 and $7 a month tier, you get uncensored episodes, which really might come in handy this week because I'm about to haul off on this guy. And at the $7 a month tier, you get episodes that are just for patrons. We've been, we've been making bonus episodes all season that only go out to that small group of people. So check us out on Patreon. Consider making a donation and subscribing to us. Brad, it is time for Brad Explains, the part of the show where you break down the plot of the movie that you have just seen, often for the first time. I'm I'm so bummed. I can't even. I, I, my heart is not in this anymore. <laughs> the, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna hang up, hang up my spurs, and walk away. <laughs> like <laughs> this, like John Wayne at the end of the, uh, the Searchers. Yes, man. <laughs> Uh, All right. All right, man. You have a minute on the clock to break down the plot of this movie and go. Raising Arizona is a film about a couple who meets because the gentleman is a convict and the lady is a police officer. They fall in love, get married and find out that they cannot have children. And so in order to alleviate them of this problem, she decides that, you know, they're not able to adopt because of his checkered past. And so she decides that when a famous furniture salesman has quintuplets, five children, that they should just steal one of them because they have way too many on their hands. So they go and steal a child and they take terrible care of it and hi, the male character's friends from prison escape. Uh, like a birthing scene, and it's disgusting, and they come to his house and ruin his life, and he punches a guy who wants to be a swinger with his wife, and they return the babies, baby, to the other babies. And there's a biker who's weird. I'm so sad. (laughs) I I don't even know what to do. Uh, all right, man. Tell me the part of this movie that you enjoyed or that you chuckled at. Yeah, I thought I will say there were a f- the di- the Cohen brothers dialogue at certain points of this film were was still sharp. Like you can tell that the Cohen brothers just know how to write a script. And the moment that actually got me pretty good was when. Ed and Hi are having lunch with, you know, her friends, the respectable folk, and she's telling them about all these shots that they need to get and finding a pediatrician and all this stuff. And eventually they return after a terrible visit with this, you know, this friend of hers and the convicts, (laughs) upon hearing that the baby needs to get his shots, the convict goes, what is Diptet? (laughs) That... (laughs) That, like it was so unexpectedly funny, especially based on the the previous 30, 40 minutes of the film that it actually got like a legit laugh out of me. Just the the irony of a convict knowing what shots this child needed to get that that was highly amusing. to There me. you go. One point for that. So, so it's going to get point. at least a one out of ten. We're we're that's we're off and running now, baby. <laughs> yeah, I think before we dive into performances. 
because I, I don't want this to just devolve into like us both being uninterested in this conversation. <laughs> oh, I'm highly interested. I'm, I'm here, man. <laughs> That's good because I don't know if you remember, like when we did the assassination of Jesse James episode. Now, and granted, that was so early on in the podcast that. Yeah, I don't feel like we even had a rhythm yet. And so it really threw a wrench into trying to eke out an episode. <laughs> but you also you hated that movie so much that you just like checked out of that whole episode. You were just like, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say. You know, Bob, I, I, I still remember. I, I know I mentioned it on that episode. There was just a certain point of that film where I just felt this fire in my belly <laughs> and anger in my soul. That you were making me watch and it. And honestly, I, like, I don't even mind that part of it so much. It was the fact <laughs> that you came into the episode and just, like, crossed your arms and you're like, I don't even care. <laughs> like, it's like, dude, this is an audio format. You can't just be silent the whole time. <laughs> just just be so, a sullen toddler in the corner. <laughs> okay, so I guess I would like to hear, comparing this movie to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I don't just mean, like, one was funnier than the other, whatever. Like, think about the aesthetics. Think about the overall vibes of the movie. What is it about A Brother Where Art Thou that makes that feel like, I guess, a more cohesive experience for you? Like, mm -hmm. what, what made that movie work that made this movie feel sloppy? I don't know if that's even a word I want to use because uh, I'm not sure if you would describe it that way. But clearly something yeah. about this one didn't work for you. So, no. what, yeah, go ahead. Bob, you are you're honestly describing exactly the the issues. I think that your comparison, I hadn't thought of this until you said it. Your comparison of this film to Animaniacs like was like the light of heaven shining down upon my soul. I was like, "Oh, this movie is a cartoon." Yeah, 100%. Like the the way that Nicolas Cage is like crawling under the car as he's trying to get away. <laughs> Dude, the from... face that he makes is so good. It's so it's funny. It's so dumb. And it, like the way he does it is so disjointed and stilted and fake Aww. and just feels. Ugh. Okay. Okay. And, like, stop insulting it. Just a answer the question though. Like I am answering the question. Right, right, right. Fine, fine, fine. I and that's that's the issue with the entire movie. It just feels disjointed, and it like it's so stylistic in trying to present itself as a cartoon mm -hmm. that it feels like the Cohen brothers are like winking at each other, like ah, ah, we're just making a stupid movie, but nobody's gonna catch on. You see what we're doing there, and like it just. The the way that Leonard Smalls walks into uh, the Arizona furniture store and it shows like a, a match just appear in his hand and a cigarette appear in his other hand and just all of the stylistic choices they made with the camera just made me want to claw my eyes out. All right. So here's what I'm trying to figure out at this point. Like, does it need to be like... Uh like TV stations during an election cycle where you're like mandated to have equal, give equal opportunity to both sides. Like you can't just show ads for the Republicans or the Democrats. You, I'm you wondering like if I should our keep con our conversation right now. That's what I'm saying. I don't know if I should keep, because <laughs> I'm trying to like actually understand your point of view, but I'm also realizing that the more I let you talk, the more you're well, going to turn off anyone from ever checking out this movie, that, no, which I legitimately think is a great movie. Yeah, that, and that's fine that you have, you are as, as uh, if you are a longtime listener, 
As producer Eric used to say, you are entitled to your own wrong opinion. Correct. Here, here's another, I, I think this will help sum it up a little more. It has, the comedy in this has too much of a family guy feel to it. And the, the scene I'm thinking of is when John Goodman and whoever the heck played his brother are being birthed out of the ground, almost uh, uh, like a farcical Shawshank Redemption. They're clawing their way out of the ground. It's a very obvious birth metaphor. And they just scream for four minutes straight. <laughs> and I like when it first started happening, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, there, it's a it's a birth thing. That's kind of funny. And he's yelling. And then he rips his brother out and they're, he's yelling. And and it's funny because babies scream when they're born. And, uh, and, and and that was the whole movie for me. It was just all overwrought and overdone. And I think that in a in a show like Family Guy. It can work for me because I like the 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 humor that they're going for. But in this movie, it just clashed with the content of the film. Hmm. And you get to the end of the movie and there's this really poignant last, what, eight minutes of the film, nine minutes of the film where they have this really incredible conversation with Nathan Arizona. And I was sitting there and I could feel myself being emotionally moved. And I was like, damn it, like. This movie doesn't deserve this. <laughs> and then I, I legitimately started thinking about that phrase and I was like, oh, like not just in a me being angry way, but like this film literally doesn't deserve this. None of these characters have acted this way except for Ed. Uh, we'll get to Ed later. She is a uh, she's allowed to stand aside from all of the criticism I hurl at this film. But none of the characters deserved the ending that they got. Nathan Arizona like was a snake oil salesman the entire movie. And all of a sudden he's this great old wise purveyor of wisdom and mercy and grace. Like, no, that's not the character that you gave us throughout the entire film and all. And, and it's just such a sudden abrupt shift in tone. I, I just couldn't do it, man. Couldn't do it. All right. Here's the dilemma I'm facing once again. I okay. Will, I will restate the dilemma, but you're doing a really good job of articulating what didn't work for you and why for you it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And I really feel like I have no powerful argument to make in my favor other than just like, yep, all of that worked for me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, and, yeah. and I think in a lot of ways, that's kind of what this movie boils down to is like, are you OK with a movie that is unabashedly silly and uh, not for most of it, not striving for anything more than being unabashedly silly. And if you recall last week, this is kind of my complaint about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which is that there are elements of it that try to be really silly, uh, but it's all kind of in the trappings of a prestige film. <laughs> I've always wondered, like, why did they put so much uh, effort into the aesthetic of this movie? And like, it's just a silly little film that they dressed up to look really nice and that's not again like that's not a bad thing it's just always confounded me whereas this movie is just kind of like you know the camera work for lack of a better word is kind of ugly on purpose they use these wide angle lenses that make everybody look just a little bit grotesque it's the same kind of lenses that like stanley kubrick used in a lot of his movies and uh you'll see i mean you see it a lot especially in that late 80s early 90s period 
Tim Burton was using a lot of this kind of camera work. If you've watched like Beetlejuice or, you know, the Pee Wee movie, like there's a lot in that. Um, And I think it really works for the story they're trying to tell. Like this is just a zany little movie. And also, I think it still fits in really well with the Coen brothers kind of overall. I don't know, uh, their bag, like they're always telling these little American fables about either dim-witted people or ordinary people who get in over their heads and get, you know, pulled into a story of crime and there's a moral redemption arc for somebody or there's at least a moral to be learned. I think it really does fit in super well with that. And it's set in this kind of uh only <laughs> only slightly exaggerated kind of like touristy version of the west that would make a lot of sense for people in the late 80s watching this. It's like I don't know how to explain it, Brad. It reminds me, and the movie I was going to use for my make it a double at the end of the day was It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. And how mm. and how that movie is like a, a really great poster for the late 50s, early 60s. And that sort of like weird capitalist moment of the late 50s and how you meet these characters who are cartoons throughout that movie. And you and I, I know, both love that movie. Yeah, this movie if I could sum it up, and and this is what I was going to go for at the end of the episode, was like, this movie is, it's a mad, 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 mad world if you introduced crystal meth into the equation. Like, it, yeah. it is, it, and again, I think it fits right in with that late 80s aesthetic, and, and we know that Brad G is a noted hater of the <laughs> 80s. Do you want to know something crazy? What's that? I was going to choose mad, 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 mad world as my make it a double. Were you really? 100%. Wow. That was my choice. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I, so there's a couple more questions I have and and I don't yeah, I mean I, I want to let you get your thoughts out here because I think you are making good points. I disagree with all of them. Like I'm I am going to give this movie a 10 out of 10 and you're probably going to give it like a 1 or a 2 out of 10. And so that makes me I want to just say to Film and Whiskey Nation, I don't care if Brad's making a more compelling argument than me. <laughs> I kind of hope this becomes the most watched movie of our season because I really want to know what people think. It's really it's really rare that we are this polarized on a movie, Brad. (laughs) And that makes me want like, you know, I'm sure that you wouldn't wish this movie upon your worst enemy. I'm wishing it upon my worst enemy. I'm telling everyone out there, like, go watch it. Because at the end of the day, like I said, it's it's not even 90 minutes long. Like, it is not a long movie, even if it felt that way to Brad. It sure did, man. Some of the points you were making, you were talking about how stylized it was and how that didn't work for you. And this was an argument we made in our Scott Pilgrim episode weeks and weeks Mm -hmm. ago. And that movie didn't work for me at all. Like, I really didn't care for that movie. What is it about a movie like Scott Pilgrim and the world that it's building that helps that movie hold together better than the world this movie's building? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I mean, part of it, I, I will say, I did not give Scott Pilgrim a 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. 10 out of 10 is a very, very high, high uh, compliment to give a movie. I think that, hmm, why does Scott Pilgrim work, but Raising Arizona doesn't? Or I guess maybe a, a follow-up slash clarifying question is like, do you, even if you hate the world, the ugly little world that this movie builds, does it still feel like they built out a fully realized world in this movie the way that it did in Scott Pilgrim? 
They they definitely built out a fully realized world. I, I think that for me, the scene that really turned me off to the film was the opening baby scene. Okay. Like what like when Nicolas Cage is stealing the baby. That like it was the most pointless scene of the film. I actually agree like, with that. I like and it's played for laughs, but it goes on way too long. It goes on way too long. And it it like it's uh, I guess I'm realizing the reason I I hate this movie. It stretches the idea of even within the world of this movie, it stretches the ideas of reality so far that I just completely check out. Hmm. Even in a farcical comedy, even in a dark comedy like this is, the idea of him not just picking up one of the babies and leaving. Like, it, like what is he doing? Why is he setting them on the ground in a circle on the floor and then freaking out when one of them is crawling towards the door and then putting them back in the crib? And the, It is so beyond the bounds of my suspension of disbelief that I was just like, this is, this is, this is bad. And I, I think that the movie just continually does that throughout. I think the entire character of of uh, the the motorcycle guy, Smalls, mm-hmm. Leonard Smalls, mm-hmm. I think, completely checked me out. Like, he High has this dream about this man of the apocalypse, and it just goes on for like 10 straight minutes of him riding around shooting bunny rabbits and lizards and having small children's shoes tied to his belt. Like, it, it just stretches the imagination so, so far that I'm just like, th- like, even within the world that they've built, it's way beyond my willingness to go as a viewer with my suspension of disbelief. This movie had a profound emotional impact on me, and it left me at the end wanting to talk about how we extend grace to each other and how Nicolas Cage talks about, like, you know, we even we could be good. We could be good, too. And in the spirit of that, I'm just letting you make your points. And I thanks, man. I feel like I am I am rising above the muckety mm. muck that you are trying to drag me down into. And you take whatever moral victory you need. <laughs> I'm going to have to. Yeah, I was going to say. Loss. Oh, my gosh, dude. Let's take a break. Let's drink some whiskey and then we'll come back and we'll get into like the regular meat and potato stuff. I do want to talk about the performances and what which which ones we liked, which ones we didn't like. Uh, but let's at least agree on a good whiskey here, Brad. What do you say? Uh, dude, I am so ready for this log of one. All right, everybody. We are transitioning away from talking about that movie. And we're talking. That was, <laughs> your, that was your most like 90s radio DJ opening ever. <laughs> Bob and Brad in the morning. Hey, we're drinking Lagavulin 16 year. We have never had a whiskey from the Lagavulin distillery before. This is a big deal for us because Brad and I both really like Lagavulin. And this, the Lagavulin 16 is a special occasion whiskey if ever there was one. Like I've had a pour of this on my anniversary before. I know Brad has either had it like on his birthday or his anniversary. We've talked about it with each other before. Um, I'm I'm really excited to do this, man. I actually think that the first Lagavulin I ever had was, do they make like a 23 year? 
Oh, they might. I don't. Listen, if they do, I've never seen it in the wild. I'm sure they do. Yeah. But like, you know, I I can't walk into like mom and pop's liquor store in Akron, Ohio and find Lagavulin (laughs) 23. 23. Yeah. 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 But no, this is so this is shout out to one of my really great friends uh, who's a police officer down in Columbus. He donated this sample for us and I am incredibly thankful. And as you said, Bob. This is like his once a year, I buy a bottle of this and I drink it on, you know, special occasions or just times where I really desperately need one of the best whiskeys I've ever drank. So even in looking up, you know, trying to find tidbits about this and a little bit more into like the production of it, things like that. The thing that keeps coming up about Lagavulin is that it is the peatiest of all peat. And I, again, I have not seen like the charts. I know that I've seen charts before that talk about like how much, you know, parts per million or whatever of, of the whiskey is peat. Maybe Lagavulin is the peatiest one. I feel like we had that debunked when we talked with uh, our friend Cam from Ardbeg the mm-hmm. one time. Yep. Uh, but right now I'm reading off of a website called the Whiskey Exchange, which I get a lot of good information from. And it says, probably the most pungent of all Isla malts. Lagavulin is not for the faint-hearted, but inspires fanatical devotion in its many followers. Brad, I'm nosing this right now, and I don't mean mm-hmm. to jump, you know, jump into the nose before we really give the details here. But it's peaty, but it's so much softer than a lot of peaty whiskeys that we've had. Yep, and I don't mean that yeah. it's like less peaty. It just has a lot of really nice floral and sweet notes underneath that. Mm-hmm. This is not. An especially pungent whiskey, I would say. No, no, I I don't know what people are getting when they call it the peatiest, because for me, as you spend time on the nose and on the palate and let it sit there and have an enjoyable finish, I like there is peat throughout. Don't get me wrong. But I think that the Lafroig lore we had had more peat than Mm -hmm. this. I think that some of the Ardbeg expressions feel peatier than this. Yep. This, to me, is an incredibly smooth experience. And I like, yes, there's peat throughout, but it's so tasteful and it it adds to the experience of floral, mm-hmm. fruity, like stone fruit, iodine, it's a much honey more, experience. Yeah, for me, it's a much more caramely version of peat. Mm-hmm. You know, before we get too far down the rabbit trail here, let's just say this again. This is a 16 year old single malt whiskey from Lagavulin, which is an Isla Scotch. Isla is a region in Scotland that is known for its very peaty scotches. Peat is uh, organic matter that has decomposed in bogs. It's used in the malting process. It gives these scotches an especially smoky and sometimes briny kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when people say that it smells like uh, a cigar has been extinguished in in your whiskey, that's what they're talking about. So if you've, you know, if you are not a fan of scotch, it may be because you started with peaty scotches. Not all scotch smells like this. But... And I was going to say, if that's the case, go drink Quinta Rubin. Right. Yeah. Get yourself, get yourself acclimated with like a Highland scotch or uh, space side scotches. Like. Anyway, the Isla ones are the ones that you're probably thinking of. These are, they're really nothing to mess around with, if I'm being frank. But <laughs> but again, yeah. even among those, I think this one, Brad, is is much softer, much more inviting. It comes in at 86 proof, and I think we should dive right in here, man. Give us your nosing notes. Yeah, on the nose, A, it's incredible. <laughs> uh, B, 
there's honey, there's some charcuterie meats, there is obviously a decent amount of peat. Uh, I got a little bit of that nice iodine saline feel to mm-hmm. it. And then the longer I spent with it, the more the honey kind of came out along with like sweet mint and grapefruit. Yeah. Yeah. I love those notes, man. Uh, it definitely has a little bit of mint on it. Definitely honey forward. For me, uh, instead of grapefruit, it's more of like a cantaloupe. I get a lot of melon mm, on this. Yeah. And there's something about, you know, when they make like soaps or candles that they say are like, like called, they're called like by the sea or something. And it just smells like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like fresh. It's meant to evoke like fresh wind or something by on, on the mm-hmm. beach. This kind of has that. Like this reminds me of like standing by the ocean, a, a mist coming off of it. And again, that's mm-hmm. kind of what the Isla region of Scotland is like. But uh, this is very, very bright for something as peaty as it is. And I really like that about it. I'm going to give this a nine out of 10 on the nose, Brad. Yeah, I'm at a nine and a half out of ten, Bob. Now it is worth noting. When, it is worth noting that Brad likes peated scotches probably more than I do. I'm not opposed mm-hmm. to them, but this is one of your favorite types of whiskey. Yeah, yeah. I and I I will always say it. Peated scotches are not like what I think about drinking first. Mm-mm. I don't like on a random night where I'm like, yeah, I just kind of need a drink. What what should I pour? I don't often just go, ah, let's go the peated route. But every time I do, I never regret it. <laughs> All right, man, let's talk about this flavor profile. Now, I will say I'll go first here because I just took a sip. I'm a little disappointed coming off the nose just because there isn't a ton of that sweetness sticking around. It turns pretty bitter pretty quick. This is a de- definitely a medicinal whiskey when you hear that bitter. phrase being tossed around. Yeah, and I, I don't huh. mean like it's not souring at all, but it's kind of like, yeah. you know, when you take a pill that's like an uncoated pill and it starts to dissolve mm-hmm. in your mouth a little bit. This is what that tastes yep. like. It's it's medicinal. And right around the edges of my tongue, I get just a hint of that melon and honey. Uh, but this is not really well balanced in terms of like sweetness to medicinal ratio hmm yeah i mean for me i think that you get a lot of peat throughout the the palate and then uh, there's a lot of honey and melon i i did move from a grapefruit into more of a melon on the palate Mm -hmm. and then it was a little bit oaky there was some pine nuts coming through and then bits of vegetal notes that that kind of rounded out the experience for me This is one of the most, not necessarily high complexity, but the complexity that it has is a perfect marriage of flavors. And so there's a, a, it's a complex palette that has sweetness and vegetal and some nuttiness paired with the peat and the oak. I think this is a 10 out of 10 on the taste, Bob. I knew you were going to love this one. Yeah, I just prefer mine to stay just a little bit sweeter than this. The second sip definitely was an improvement. Like my palate had acclimated to it a little bit. I get a lot more like raw barley or even like a um, like a breakfast cereal version of like honey smacks or something like that. Mm-hmm. There's definitely some of that cereal coming through here. It's just not quite sweet enough for me. I could take that medicinal flavor if it was balanced out a little bit better. I'm just going to give this mm-hmm. one a seven and a half on the flavor. Uh, The finish here, long, smooth, it leaves like that smoky campfire taste in your mouth. 
honestly, it was like an hour, hour and a half after I drank it, and I could still just barely have feel that in my in my throat. Absolutely loved it. Uh, as I was drinking it, though, really a lot of stone fruits came out at the end, some like figs and prunes, along with the oakiness and the smokiness. Yeah, on the finish, I think some of that complexity comes back that you're referring to. The the honey is definitely still there. I like how you called it oakiness and smokiness. I think it's a really good. <laughs> it reminds me of a really good charcuterie board. Like I'm getting some almost like some peach or apricot jam coming up a little bit, like mixed mm. with a really good like prosciutto, some sort of like a like a salty ham. It's all there. It's really, really good significantly better than the palette was for me. I'm going to give this like an eight and a half on the finish. Yeah, I, I'm at a nine and a half on the finish. And then when we get to balance, Bob, it, it's a 10 out of 10 for me. Like, like, what is there not to like about this experience? It is complex. The flavors are all on point. They all balance each other out really well and enhance each other. I I think Lagavulin is is easily knocking it out of the, the proverbial park here. Yeah, I'm going to disagree just because I did think that the palette was a big step down from the rest of the experience for me. Brad, like yeah, big I, surprise, I'm Bob s- disagreeing with Brad. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. If only <laughs> if only you could disagree with me and still give everything an average of like an eight out of ten. Uh, and that's what I'm saying here. Like, I don't like this as much as you, but this is a good whiskey. This is a really good whiskey. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the balance. Okay, so value in the grand, beautiful, incredible state of Ohio. This whiskey will set you back $95. Yeah, I think that I think that I actually for flavor would prefer the Ardbeg Ugadal to this. I liked that hmm. better than this. Um, that is a good whiskey. That one is also I think that one's like almost barrel proof right isn't that like 110 or 115 proof or something uh i remember one of the ardbegs is barrel proof it it probably is the ugadol in any case i would prefer that to this it's roughly the same price point so do i think that a 16 year isla scotch retailing for 95 dollars is a good value absolutely i do it's not my favorite one among that price point but it's not a bad value i'll give it a seven out of ten uh, I will give it a nine out of ten, Bob. Uh, like I think the fact that this will cost you less than a hundred dollars is is pretty impressive, and it, it's a it's a good price point. If this was like seventy nine ninety nine, I, I think I'd be up at the ten out of ten range. All right, so where are you coming out, Brad? Because I actually have a really great score, and you, I know that you are much higher than me. So, Bob. This outside of the barrel seagrass, this might be my second highest rated whiskey of all time. I'm at a 48 out of 50. Oh my gosh, dude. Yeah. Hey. I, I think this is truly incredible. I mean, I don't want to like dampen your spirits here any, but like it is not that <laughs> good, dude. Like it's it's good. I'm coming to a 39 and a half. So like I'm almost at a 40 out of 50. I really oh. like this whiskey. And yeah. that's somehow still not good enough for Brad. <laughs> I just, this is everything I want out of a peated scotch. We're at an 87.5 out of 100 or a 43.75 out of 50. Like it's a damn good whiskey folks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that like 43, 44 out of 50 is like a very fair score to give this 39 and a half. You know, it's a little low, but when, you know, we can let it skip by. 
Dude, wouldn't it have been funny if we had been as split on this whiskey, if if we're going to be on this movie? <laughs> You're at like a 19 out of 50. <laughs> All right, man. Let's get back into talking about Raising Arizona. Oh, I suppose so. We can do it, Bob. Let's get through this. All right, everybody. That was Lagavulin 16, a whiskey that we have consensus on. One of the greatest whiskeys in film and whiskey podcast history. <laughs> It's a really good whiskey. It is. No, honestly, I can respect that. I like I all joking aside, I know that it, it's not necessarily everybody's cup of tea and I I'm with you. I think the Ugadol was an incredible whiskey. So I it, that's that's fine, man. That doesn't make me upset that you like that a little more. All right, man. Uh I you are delaying the inevitable here. And when we talk about mm-hmm. the inevitable, I mean my crushing defeat that comes every week at the hands of Brad G at a game that we call Two Facts and a Falsehood. Two Facts and a Falsehood is where Brad presents three items to me, all of them presented as fact, one of which is completely made up about the making of this film, and I have to guess which one is the fabrication. Brad, I'm on a two-week winning streak. You are. But something tells me that as I've already put all my eggs in the basket of hoping you would like this movie, uh, like karma's just not going to (laughs) be kind to me this week. It's going to catch up. Yeah, I will say I was a bit malicious with this week's Two Facts and a Falsehood. Uh, you are not going to like it. But Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. But I will say, honestly, I chose the falsehood that I did mostly because of the facts that I was reading in the IMDb page for Raising Arizona. There were like six or seven different facts that the same person must have gone in and entered because they were so weirdly specific and they were things that I had never seen on a fax page for any movie before. And I was just like, well, forget it. We're just we're just going to do that. So our, with all that as a as a preface, are you ready, Bob? Let's do it, man. Fact number one, the striking Adobe home of the Arizonas was was the historic 1925 Jokaki Inn on North Phoenician Boulevard, which is now incorporated into the Phoenician Resort, 6000 East Camelback Road at the foot of the Camelback Mountains in Scottsdale, Arizona. Fact number two, the gas station that H.I. likes to continuously rob throughout the film, aptly named the Short Stop, is now a Circle K and is located at 372 North High Street in Scottsdale, Arizona. Fact number three, escaped convicts Gail and Evel Snotes set out to rob the Farmers and Mechanics Bank of LaGrange, taking with them baby Nathan Jr. The bank was actually a restaurant, the now-closed Riata Pass Steakhouse, located at 27,500 North Alma School Parkway, south from East Dynamite Boulevard, north of Scottsdale, Towards Carefree, Arizona. Why Why did you do this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't like. What kind of sick, twisted satisfaction are you getting out of this? It is like impossible for me to know any of that. Like usually with two facts and a falsehood, you're like, oh, yeah, like Mark Hamill during Star Wars took a lunch break with Alec Guinness and they talked about Cary Grant. And I'm like, oh, OK, that sounds plausible. Like, you know, now you're like. Do you know your Scottsdale landmarks? <laughs> I hope so. Like I said, Bob, 
if you go down the IMDb page, uh, trivia page for Raising Arizona, there's like seven different facts that are ju- that literally have addresses in them. They're like, you know, this place in the movie, it's now this at this address. <laughs> I was like, why did somebody do this? And then I realized this is a grand opportunity. Here's, and I took it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to say two is the falsehood. And I have absolutely no reason to believe that, except that I have no idea where Circle K's geographic landmark or geographic footprint ends. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty sure Circle K started in Canada. So I'm just going to say if if it ends anywhere, like Arizona <laughs> seems like a pretty good stretch. So I'll say two's false and that Circle K doesn't stretch that far. And that's my answer. Bob, Circle K does stretch that far. Damn it. But you are right. That hey, is the falsehood. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, I am I am racking up the moral victories today. <laughs> you sure are, man. I'm very proud of you. All right, dude. Uh so with my three wins in a row, let's carry that goodwill into talking about these performances. And really, Brad, I mean, we can knock out some of the smaller performances if you want. There's a you know, there's a great early John Goodman role in this one. Um, but there's really two people we need to touch on for sure, and that's Holly Hunter and Nicolas Cage. And it sounds like you really liked Holly Hunter's performance more than about everything else in the movie. And I she, think we should start there. Yeah, she was the only believable character in this entire film. Yeah. And, and when I say believable, I mean even within the world of this story. Mm. She made the most sense to me. And was true to who her character purported itself to be throughout the whole film. And I, I thought Holly Hunter was really a great performance in this. She really anchors the whole movie. And, you know, there are scenes where she's crying and, and supposed to be hysterical and it's played for laughs. And then there's other scenes where it's it's her and Nicolas Cage in the car and they're having like really quiet conversation you know, about their hopes and dreams or whatever. And you just see the hurt in her eyes as someone who can't have children. And it's like, you know, even as a guy who thinks this is like a perfect comedy, it's the kind of performance where it's like, man, I don't know if this movie deserved this good of a performance. Like she took this thing really seriously and she just knocks it out of the park, man. It's easy to see why she goes on to win an Academy Award uh, and, you know, and then becomes Mrs. Incredible. Like, that's just like the career capper. But she's fantastic in this movie. Yeah, I, I think that, like you said, what she brings is just authenticity to the role. And, and I, I love the way that she interacts with the people around her. Like, if anything, she is like the stand in for me where I'm just like, what the F? is going on right now and why is it happening and the moments where she like kind of engages in the comedy and and like you know at the start of the film like the fact that she agrees to marry hi is pretty ridiculous but at that point in the film like it because it's a montage with narration you haven't seen her as a character enough to like realize that she's the only sane person and so it's like, yeah, sure, like this is a funny setup and I, you know, I'm I'm okay with the idea. Cop, former cop, former convict. Let's see what happens. Uh but the rest of the movie, she's just incredible. All right, let's talk about Nicolas Cage. I actually really like Nicolas Cage in this movie because 
The movie is so wild, and I have seen so many Nicolas Cage performances, especially in the last 10 years, where he finds a gear that I didn't even realize Nicolas Cage had. Like, he is so unhinged in some movies that I actually was surprised at how grounded he felt in a world as wild as this one. Does that make sense? Like, it's uh, it's not like the most unhinged version of Nicolas Cage. Yeah, that's that's true. I would agree with that statement. It's not the most unhinged version of Nicolas Cage. It is, however, the most Jimmy Stewart version of Nicolas Cage. Oh, what do you mean by I that? I think we've ever gotten. It, it, the way he talks throughout the entire film, all I could think about was Jimmy Stewart. Like hmm. the, the way he slurred his words and it felt like me, who is not an actor, trying to sound like Jimmy Stewart. Interesting. Okay. So what would you think of the performance? It was too zany. It, he Half the time he's trying to be serious and then the other half the time he's just so wacky and off the wall that it, 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 it betrays each other. That you can't take the serious stuff seriously and you can't take the funny stuff with enough humor because you don't know what he's going for. And I, and I don't know if I would put that on Nicolas Cage. I, I think I would put that on the Coen brothers because that's the complaints I have about so much of the movie. So I, I think I would say that I think Cage probably did what they wanted, but uh, what they wanted wasn't very good. All right. Before we clock out of here for the day, I just want to say I found this movie hilarious. And there were certain lines in this movie, to your point, like the Coen brothers writing. And I think I told you to watch this movie with the captions on. Because I really thought that a lot of the narration especially had some some lines where it's like once you see it printed, it's even funnier. Like in the opening monologue where they first find out that she is barren, she can't have kids. Nicolas Cage's character decides to describe that by saying the doctor explained that her insides were a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase. <laughs> I'm just like, like if that is not the perfect encapsulation of how weird and over the top and wacky this movie is about to be. Like, it didn't work for you, Brad. It worked for me. I giggled my ass off throughout this movie. I think we should move into final scores here, but we do want to reiterate, we both already picked our movie for Let's Make It a Double. We would pair this up with It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. I think also, like, I talked a little bit about the visuals and how they're, everything looks kind of askew in this movie. And I think that does pair up really well with some of those early Tim Burton movies. Like if you wanted to just have a, a really weird 80s movie night, you could watch this and Beetlejuice. And I feel like those would those would line up pretty well. Brad, is there any other movie that you th could think of that you would pair this up with besides the one we already um, mentioned? Um, I've actually already used this as a movie, but it literally just popped in my head. So I'm going to say it. Uh, Logan Lucky. Mm, yeah, yeah. I feel like it has a little bit of a similar vibe, partially just. You know, the main characters are a little bit, as you have said many times, dim-witted. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, maybe maybe Logan Lucky. All right. I like it. I think that it is time for us to give final scores. I am going to give this movie a 10 out of 10. And I feel very weird because I don't feel like I have mounted any sort of passionate defense of this movie. But I feel so strongly <laughs> that this is a really good movie that I almost don't feel like I need to. Brad, I've let, I have let you speak your piece. The only 10 thing out of 10 is not really good territory. 
Yeah, I think it's like a, a, a perfectly made American comedy. There are very few wow. movies that I find to be like as funny as this while also building a world. You know, we talked about Anchorman really briefly last week. Anchorman is a really funny movie with really quotable lines. And the whole time you're watching it, you don't believe for a second that you were in the 1970s. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just it's like an extended SNL sketch where all the mustaches look fake and all the wigs look fake. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's part of the joke. This yeah. movie, for any of the drawbacks that you might see in it, like you said, it creates a world and you are living in that world for 90 minutes. And if it works for you, it works really well. And if it doesn't, it apparently does not work at all. I, it worked really <laughs> well for me. Again, I'll say that the ending of this movie really impacted me emotionally. I loved that closing narration where Nicolas Cage is talking about having a dream and and kind of looking forward into the future and seeing an old couple in his dream. And it's so it's so touching because he puts it so simply. And and you said this already. He's kind of a simpleton, so he puts things simply. But he said, and the old couple wasn't screwed up and neither were their kids and grandkids. And I don't know. You tell me this whole dream. Was it wishful thinking? Was I just fleeing reality like I'm liable to do? But me and Ed, we can be good, too. And I just this movie works for me and I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. That ending scene. Deserves a better movie to attach it to. I like I was truly blown away. The 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 monologue by Nathan Arizona, the monologue by H.I. I like genuinely was a phenomenal ending to uh, just a bad film. And so I that literally brought my score up one full point. The the ending of that movie. I will give this movie a five point five out of ten. Wow, that is much higher than I anticipated. <laughs> the I the average that... of this the average of our scores <laughs> is not going to be a five. I thought it'd be a five. <laughs> I will say the first thing that tipped me off to how wrong you were going to be was when I like I went on the IMDb page for like, you know, just for some reason to to look something up and I noticed I was like, "Oh, this has a 7.3." Mm-hmm. Like most movies we watch are 7.5 and up. I was like, 7.3, like, Bob's been talking about this like it's 10 out of 10. I, I'm i a little worried now. Like, if it was a 7.6, 7, 7.8, I would have been like, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> but the fact that it was a 7.3, I was like, oh, Bob's off his rocker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this movie did get really mixed reviews when it first came out. I think there's been a bit of a critical reappraisal. One of my favorite critics that, you know, we follow him on Twitter and we interact once in a while. His name is Bilge Ibiri. He, gave, he thinks this is the Coen Brothers' best movie ever. He gave it a 10 out of 10. And I saw that right before we hopped on tonight. And I was like, dude, we should have invited him on the show. And now I really feel like we should have invited him on the show because I would have had someone <laughs> in my corner this whole time. I know we're at the end of the, the episode, but like, I actually, like, what made this movie go from a nine and a half to a 10 for you? Because like, that's, like, 10 out of 10 is special. I think that... The ending is what puts it up in that. You you know me like with comedies, I really struggle if it doesn't have anything deeper to say. And I feel sometimes like I'm unfair to comedies because sometimes being silly is enough. And uh, and that's really hard for me, though. And so I thought this movie maintained the silliness. It it kept itself pretty light and breezy. It's a really fast paced movie. It's a really short movie. It knows when to get in and out. 
And then to tack on at the end, it gets really poignant. And I think it has a lot to say about parenthood and like raising kids in a really messed up world and evaluating yourself in the face of that and trying to measure up and then realizing like, hey, we we are all effed up in a lot of ways and we can all be good if we choose to be. I just I really think that it does exactly what a comedy is supposed to do. When I give it a 10 out of 10, it doesn't mean I think it's a better movie than Lawrence of Arabia just because I gave Lawrence of Arabia a nine and this a 10. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, but yeah. I, I think this movie is as good as a movie like this could possibly be. And that's what makes it a 10 for me. Yeah. I mean, I will, I will give you Bill Jabiri a uh, 10 out of 10. I'm just going to put it out there. Just, just saying. Roger Ebert, one and a half stars. Yeah, he did not like this movie. So I, I don't think I'm in, you know, poor, <laughs> poor community here. All right. Next week, we are going to be watching The Big Lebowski. And the reason I put The Big Lebowski at the end of this miniseries is because I've only seen The Big Lebowski once and I did not like it. I feel like about that movie the way you felt about this movie. And so I want to give it another chance. And we're bringing on an author named Kathleen Falsani next week. She's written a book about the Coen brothers. She is going to help me cope and parse out this movie that I do not understand. And Brad, have you seen The Big Lebowski? I have not. I know that. What is it? The Dude Rules. The Dude Abides. The Dude Abides. Sorry. <laughs> and I know that it made white Russians popular. It Those sure, are the two sure things did. I know. All right, man. So we'll be back next week. We'll see if Brad likes that movie more than this one. <laughs> but until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. 